Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. An extended episode of the GDPR Weekly Show this week because we simply had too many news stories to bring you to fit within our usual 30 minutes. So we begin with an update on the NHS COVID-19 tracking app. We follow that with clarification on the EU standards for COVID-19 tracking apps. We then have news that Joodle has improved the capture of phishing emails related to COVID-19 across its Gmail platform. We then have a report of the City of York Council in the north of England having a COVID-19 related data breach. We then have news of a data breach in the UK House of Lords, again related to COVID-19. And then moving away from COVID-19 into other issues, we have concerns over the headcount of technical analysts at the ICO in the UK, but also at its equivalent ICOs across other European countries, in being able to deal with the volume of GDPR data breaches that are being reported. We have an update on the Nintendo data breach, which we first brought to you in the previous episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And we then have news of a data breach on the GDPR.eu website. We're then back to the north of England for a report on a data breach involving data from Sheffield City Council where motorist details were exposed in a data breach of number plate recognition cameras across the city. We then have news from Warwick University of a spate of data breaches which were not reported to students or staff and also it what appeared to be at least a attempt to prevent the ICO from carrying out an audit into what had happened. We then go down the east coast of England to Great Yarmouth for a report of a data breach at Great Yarmouth Borough Council as a result of data subject access request. And it's quite a sanitary lesson in what can go wrong if you don't check that the data you're sending out is only related to the person who made the data subject request. We then have news that Court City Council over in the Republic of Ireland have suffered four data breaches in 2019 and 2020, and we have a little bit of detail on those. We then have news that Quibi, a new mobile app, has been sharing subscriber email addresses with advertisers on the platform without specific user consent, and therefore potentially laying it in breach of GDPR and CCPA. And then finally, we have news for the US pharma giant, Executifarm, which has been victim to a sophisticated ransomware attack, which has prevented the company accessing its own data. So we hope that you find the mixed articles in this week's episode useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do email us at podcast at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y uk. We do read every single email that you send in to us and wherever we can we incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback which we receive, we're not able to respond to emails individually. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show.
We begin this week with an update on the Cob ID19 tracking app, which we mentioned in the last couple of episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Last week we mentioned that it was likely that the Department for Health, together with the NHS, were going to go for a solution produced by Apple and Google, which has been adopted by a good number of countries worldwide now. But instead... NHSX, the digital arm of the NHS, is creating a centralised app. So the essential difference between the app the NHS is developing and the Google Apple app is that the Google Apple app didn't store any data centrally, it just stored it on each person's mobile device. Whereas the NHS app is going to use people's mobile devices but store some of the data centrally which does create some data privacy concerns which weren't present in the apple google app but nonetheless that's the decision that's been made and nhs officials hope their app will provide a better insight into the spread of covid19 and help flatten the curve of coronavirus infections and of course it's this flattening of the curve which has been the objective all along and part of the reason for the lockdown in the UK and other places worldwide, but talking principally here about the UK. So as I said, the idea of using a centralised data store does provide some, or present some, privacy implications. And people are also a bit worried because it could provide the blueprint for unethical mass surveillance once the pandemic ends. Because if you remember with the Apple Google app, the whole plus of it, if you like, was that when the pandemic was over and people could just delete the app then of course all their data would just be lost as well people wouldn't be able to track where they'd been whereas with the new nhs app even if you delete the app the data you supplied about where you've been will still be on the central server and so we'll, doubtless there will be a call for a really firm undertaking from the government that data will be deleted from that centralized server as soon as the pandemic is over So the way the NHS app is going to work is very similar to the Google Apple app. It's still detecting whose mobile phones are near to you by Bluetooth. But the difference is, is that as well as storing the information locally on your phone, it's also going to send some data to a central store. Now the NHS are saying that that data at that point will be anonymized so that the central store won't actually know who the data's come from. It's just building up, if you like, a more collective picture and it will only be the data on your phone which will be used to actually alert other people who've been close to you if you're now diagnosed with COVID-19. But the NHS is perhaps unsurprisingly facing questions as to why it's gone this way to develop its own app when Google and Apple are developing an app which lots of other countries are using. We didn't really get an answer to that when we posed it to NHS Digital. But what they did say was that the data will only ever be used for NHS care, management, evaluation and research. Users will always be able to delete the app and all associated data whenever they want. And that the NHS will always comply with the law around the use of the data, including the Data Protection Act 2018 and GDPR. And that the NHS will explain fully how they intend to use it. They said we'll be totally open and transparent about your choices in the app and what they mean. If we make any changes to how the app works over time, we will explain in plain English why those changes were made and what it means for you. 
Your privacy is crucial to the NHS and so while these are unusual times, we're acutely aware of our obligations to you. The security and privacy issues have been sized up and balanced against potential public health benefits and the officials in charge of the UK's coronavirus response deem the centralised app to be a necessary step. The health gains they expect to come from data analysis could save lives and this, in the eyes of the NHS health officials, outweighs any privacy quandary. A centralised app run by the NHS with expert assistance may provide invaluable insight into how COVID-19 is spread. One of the epidemiologists advising the NHS, Professor Christopher Fraser, said one of the advantages is that it is easier to audit the system and adapt it more quickly as scientific evidence accumulates. The principal aim is to give notifications to people who are most at risk of having got infected and not to people who are much lower risk. It's probably easier to do that with a centralised system. The NHS app is planned to be rolled out in the next two to three weeks and the government announced today that the first area to try out the app is probably going to be the Isle of Wight and possibly the Western Isles off the coast of Scotland. The idea being that because they are, in a way, self-contained communities, then it's perhaps easier to judge the effect that the reducing lockdown has and therefore also how well the app is working in collecting the data. It will, of course, wait to be seen just how many people actually download the app and activate it. But given that the public have responded well to government requests so far in terms of the lockdown and behaviour, it's hoped that a good number of smartphone users will download the app. And the NHS Digital say that they estimate that at least 60% of the population with a smartphone will download and use the app. And they believe that this will give us crucial information in fighting the virus, which of course everyone wants to do. Doubtless there will be more information on the app being released very soon. So if we have that before next week's GDPR Weekly Show, we will of course bring it to you then. Other than Otherwise we'll bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. This is an important coronavirus update. Stay home. Protect our NHS. While we're on the subject of COVID-19 tracking apps, it might be perhaps just revising on the requirements set out by the European Commission when it issued its guidance on apps supporting the fight against COVID-19 pandemic in relation to data protection. And the aim of this uh, guidance is to ensure that all apps across Europe offer a similar level of functionality. And while the guidance is not mandatory, it does identify useful guiding principles. And those are that the installation of the app on a device should be voluntary and there should be no negative consequences for individuals who choose not to use the app. That different app functionality should not be bundled so that an individual can provide his or her consent to each function separately. That if proximity data is used, such data should be stored on an individual's device, referred to by the Commission as decentralised processing. If the data is shared with a central location, i.e. a health authority, it should be shared only after confirmation that the user is infected with COVID-19 and only if the user consents to sharing that data. And I think it's going to be crucial that the new app from NHS Digital offers that choice. So it'd be interesting to see what is in the app once we actually get to have a copy of the app to play with. They also say that the app should be automatically deactivated when the pandemic is declared under control. Deactivation should not depend on deinstallation by the user. 
The Commission suggests that for determining proximity and close contacts, Bluetooth data is more advisable than GPS or cellular location data, as location information is not necessary for the purpose of contact tracing functionalities. And what they're saying there is that, yes, the app needs to let other people who've been near you know that they've been near you, but it doesn't need to identify where, because the whole aim of this is it won't identify an individual so there's no chance of anybody becoming vigilantes or vendettas against someone who they believe has given them top ID19 or one of their relatives top ID19. So hence, whilst we want to know who someone's been in contact with, it shouldn't be any more than the fact you have been in contact with them, not where or when you were in contact with them. In the same way, the Commission also recommends that storing the exact time or place of the contact is not necessary but the date of the contact is relevant to it as obviously as the incubation period for the illness, and that the Commission advises that proximity data be deleted as soon as no longer needed for the purpose of alerting individuals, which the EU has identified as a maximum of one month, which is incubation period plus a margin, or after someone is tested for top ID and the result comes back as being negative. So as I say, once we get sight of the NHS digital app, it would be interesting to check that it does comply with all of those requirements. I'm sure that it will, but nonetheless, we've not yet seen a copy of the app ourselves to give you a, a positive judgment on that. But when we do, we will, of course, bring you a review of the NHS digital app in a future edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay in. Stay safe. Google has announced that it's doing more to block... Fake news about Top ID19 via email. Gmail says that it's blocked over 100 million phishing emails and more than 240 million Top ID19 related spam messages on a typical day. The Top ID pandemic has opened floodgates for cyber criminals, it says, and hackers with an increasing number of phishing malware scams hitting Gmail users. Mark Johnston, Head of Security Networking and Collaboration Specialist Google Cloud Asia Pacific, said instant management is a key aspect of Google's over security and privacy program and is a key to complying with global privacy regulations such as GDPR. In addition, a full-time dedicated team called Project Zero aims to prevent targeted attacks by reporting bugs to software vendors and recording them in external databases. These measures take precedence during times when users are largely working from home outside the jurisdiction of enterprise firewalls to monitor malicious content sent across mail. The pandemic-related work-from-home measures have also resulted in a higher number of paying customers for G Suite, the portfolio of business services that includes brands such as Gmail, Docs, Sheets and Drive for both businesses and academics confined to home. Google has also worked with the World Health Organization to make it harder for people pretending to be from the World Health Organization on the internet, filtering malicious emails from reaching the recipient's inbox. Google has also strengthened the security on Google Meet and says that it now has more than 2 million new users connected on Google Meet every day and that they're spending over 2 billion minutes together. That's more than 3,800 years of secure meetings in a single day. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. York City Council had a data breach related to Top ID 19 this week. City of York Council admitted a data breach after sending the account details and addresses of small businesses that had applied for a COVID-19 grant out to other applicants for the grant. 
An email that's been seen by the press says that City of York Council has reported itself to the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, after the blunder. The Council has launched a micro-grant scheme for businesses that were not eligible for support from the scheme run by central government. The email sent to some businesses that signed up for the scheme says, We need to inform you that we've made an error in the processing of your micro-business grant, which has resulted in sending your account and address details to another applicant. This did not contain any other security information and therefore we consider any risks are low. We have contacted the recipient and asked that they delete the email and have reported our error to the Information Commissioner. The team apologises and says the breach will not affect the payment of any grant to any local business applied. One small business owner said they were very grateful for the grant but that their bank account had been blocked after the day's breach and they had to spend two hours on the phone to their bank before making a trip to the branch to sort it out. They said, it was a nightmare. When I checked, it hadn't gone in, and the bank said a block had been applied to my account. This grant is all we could apply for, and we are very grateful for it, but if there's been a leak of your data and you're not sure who has it, that's worrying. The background to this is that City of York Council had launched a £1 million scheme to help businesses of 1 to 50 people, including self-employed people. The maximum grant available was £1,000. For the council, Ian Floyd, the council's deputy chief executive, said, We would like to apologise for this mistake which was caused by human error. We have already reported it to the Information Commission and have begun an initial internal investigation to ensure improved checks are put in place to prevent this happening again. Over the past few weeks, the council has administered over £100 million of business rates relief and grants to more than 5,500 businesses working very quickly in difficult circumstances. We will continue to work around the clock to support our business community and we'd like to thank them in advance for their cooperation in making sure this support reaches those that need it most. As the breach was relatively minor and we don't believe there was, in many cases, any personal data released, we're not actually expecting the ICO to take any immediate action on this. But if we receive an update, either from the City of York or from the ICO, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Keeping you company in isolation. Together, we'll make it through. Our final COVID-19 related story this week is again a data breach, but this time concerning the UK House of Lords, which had to drop its live broadcast of virtual proceedings after the data breach. The House of Lords failed to broadcast proceedings live on Wednesday following problems with its virtual arrangements. Data breaches were cited after the mobile phone numbers of some peers were read out on Tuesday whenever they entered or exited the session on Microsoft Teams, which is the app which the House of Lords is using for its virtual proceedings. As a consequence, the House of Lords said its sitting on Wednesday was not broadcast live. In a statement, it said, Wednesday's virtual sitting will not be broadcast live. This is due to technical and data compliance issues encountered during yesterday's sitting. The House of Lords is working hard and at speed to resolve these issues in order to restore live broadcast for tomorrow, which would be Thursday. One source in the Lords told the PA news agency that they felt this seems a bit of an overreaction. In the Lords, ministers were quizzed about several issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic, including rail services, tax and garden centres. Several parts of business in the House of Lords have been conducted virtually since peers returned from the Easter recess. Last week saw journalists watch live from a room on the parliamentary estate, with the public unable to follow proceedings as they took place. This week, the proceedings were broadcast at all on the Parliament website. 
journalists were allowed to view Wednesday's proceedings after all questions in the room on the parliamentary estate and audio recordings were later made available to everyone. Hansard also published a report of proceedings which usually emerges three hours after they've taken place. A House of Lords spokesman apologised for the interruption to the live broadcast on Wednesday and said they'd worked hard to find a solution to the problem. And now, the rest of this week's news. There have been a number of concerns raised by people within the GDPR space about whether the various ICOs across Europe actually have enough technical staff working on investigating reported data breaches. And this has been investigated in a study which singled out the UK ICO for dedicating only 3% of its 680 staff to technical aspects of privacy. And there is a feeling that possibly, particularly with the increase in cases of data breaches, which were inevitable now with many people from across the whole of Europe working at home because of the COVID-19 situation, that understaffed data regulators are actually putting GDPR at the risk of collapse. Because only five out of Europe's 28 data protection authorities have more than 10 specialists examining the tech industry, which means they don't have the capacity to probe potential violations by the biggest companies. Only a handful of experts are working to uncover GDPR infringements by tech giants, according to the research by web browser maker Brave. Even when wrongdoing is clear, data protection authorities hesitate to use powers because they can't afford the cost of legally defending their decisions. Brave Chief Policy and Industry Relations Officer Dr Johnny Ryan said if the GDPR is at risk of failing, the fault lies with national governments, not with the data protection authorities. Robust adversarial enforcement is essential. GDPR enforcers must be able to properly investigate big tech and act without fear of vexatious appeals. But the national governments of European countries have not given them the resources to do so and so the European Commission must intervene, he said. He centred on the UK ICO, which, as we just said, has dedicated just 3% of its 680 staff to focus on tech privacy issues. This is despite the ICO being Europe's largest regulator and the most expensive to run. There's also major concerns in the GDPR community about the Irish Data Protection Commission, which is the lead authority on so many probes against major companies like Google and Facebook because of the fact that that's where they have their European base. And the feeling is, is that the Data Protection Commission's headcount is not growing fast enough to keep up with the increasing caseload. Germany actually comes out well in the study in that it has 29% of its staff working on tech issues, which is actually some 101 people. The German authorities are followed by Spain's regulator, which has 36, and the French authorities that have 28. The UK has recruited just 22 technical experts, despite, as mentioned, being the largest and most expensive DPA to run. The ICO's budget in the UK has doubled between 2018 and 2020 from £26.2 million to £53.3 million in the latest year. By comparison, the German DPA has a budget of £51.4 million for 2020 and the Italian regulator has a budget of just £26.3 million. 
A spokesman for the Information Commissioner's Office said the ICO recognises the vitally important role of technical specialists in addressing data protection and privacy concerns, and this is reflected in our priorities and technology strategy. While we are not yet at the level of capacity and capability we are planning for, the spokesperson added, we will continue to invest significantly in this area. The study from BRAVE also recommended that that the European Commission should launch an infringement procedure against EU countries that fail to implement Article 52.4 of the GDPR, which states that Member States must ensure that each DPA is provided with the human, technical and financial resources, premises and infrastructure required to perform their tasks. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We have an update on the Nintendo data breach which we brought to you in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The data breach which affected some 160,000 Nintendo users resulted in account takeovers and financial losses for some of those users. Now a security firm has revealed what it says was the cause of the attack. Security provider SpyCloud says that it believes attackers used the combination of crimeware and older breach data to identify and take over accounts with vulnerable logins. In this type of credential stuffing campaign, criminals use account checker tools to quickly scan lists of stolen account credentials, typically derived from older data breaches. If a user's credentials match those found in an older breach, the attacker can exploit the account or resell access to other criminals. Through its PR agency, Nintendo said it would neither confirm nor deny SpyTab's findings, instead referring people to a support page about the incident. However, SpyCloud said that it often works with law enforcement and was able to provide information resulting in the engagement of a kill switch in the source code using the Nintendo breach. This led to the potential identification of the person who distributed the account treasure tool used to test the list of stolen credentials against Nintendo's online logins. The Nintendo accounts affected by the breach were vulnerable because people were using passwords that had been exposed in previous data breaches, so not from Nintendo, but a data breach from somewhere else, which might have happened recently or even several years ago. SpyCloud said that the checker tool was able to extract specific billing and account information from the breached accounts, including gold points balance, which are points which allow you to buy Nintendo Switch digital games, Nintendo Store, Nintendo Shop, eShop balance, PayPal subscription IDs, credit card types, i.e. whether a card was Visa or MasterCard, etc., the card expiration date, the currency denomination, the first six digits of the credit card number, and the last four digits of the credit card number. So not a complete number, but of course for these sort of criminals, not that many numbers in between to have to work through to find valid numbers. At this point, the functionality of the checker tool used against Nintendo is broken due to changes the company made in response to the incident. After Nintendo saw a rise in account takeovers, the company started notifying users, resetting affected passwords and urging people to enable multi-factor authentication and avoid reusing the same passwords. Nintendo also severed the ability to use a Nintendo network ID to sign into a Nintendo account, a weakness that had paved the way for the attack in the first place. To help organisations protect themselves and their users from credential stuffing attacks and account takeovers, SpyCloud offers the following advice. First, educate users about password security. Second, align with password security guidelines from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. Three, constantly monitor user credentials for weak or stolen passwords, including employees, consumers and third parties. And four, force the use of two-factor authentication everywhere. 
Of course, users also need to take responsibility. And so we would issue the following recommendations, which are to create a unique password for every online account that you have, to choose long, strong passwords. If you want, use the Secure Password Manager to keep track of your passwords and enable multi-factor authentication wherever possible. And we would always strongly recommend the use of two-factor authentication wherever it can be used. If we receive any further updates from Nintendo about this data breach, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The website GDPR.eu, which is an advice site for organisations on how to comply with GDPR, itself suffered a data breach this week. The data breach exposed MySQL database settings, including passwords, to anyone on the internet. The GDPR.eu website is operated by Proton Technologies AG, the company behind the end-to-end encrypted email service ProtonMail. While GDPR.eu is not an official EU commission site, it is partly co-funded by the Horizon 2020 Framework Programme of the European Union and so is an EU research and innovation programme. The issue was easily found and quickly fixed the result all round, said Vandellis Dijkas and Joe Durbin, researchers with Pentest Partners, in a Monday posting. However, the irony of an EU-funded website about GDPR-Ham security issues isn't lost on us, they said. Dijkas and Durbin said the issue stemmed from the website's Git folder being readable by anyone online. This is a known problem due to lack of proper configuration, and one that's been around for years, they said. Many web developers use the open source Git tool to build their pages, as Git tracks all changes made to files in the project. The tool builds this history over time in a standard Git information repository folder. However, if the Git folder is not secured properly, the file is word-readable on the the public internet, and even occasionally indexed by Google. Access to the Git folder could lay bare source code, server access keys, database passwords, hosted files, encryption, salt keys, and more. In this particular case, researchers were able to discover the open Git folder of GDPR.eu using a simple .git browser plugin, which checks whether .git is exposed on a given website. Upon further investigation, researchers were able to view various WordPress pages associated with the website, including the wp.config file, a Tor WordPress file that contains information necessary for making the WordPress website operate. As part of this file, researchers were able to view and open the source MySQL database management settings for the website, such as the username, the host, the username and password. The researchers said that Proton Technologies responded reasonably quickly and fixed the vulnerability four days after it was reported to them. In the meantime, researchers urged website administrators to remove the Git directory from their sites to improve security. Removing the slash Git directory from all published sites is strongly recommended in order to prevent exposing sensitive data. If your site is found to have this folder available, the content should be reviewed and any password containing accessible files should be changed as they should be tasked as potentially compromised. This is very much a common problem because a scan of more than 230 million web domains worldwide in 2018 uncovered 390,000 web pages that were vulnerable due to their Git files. So if you have a website and you have a .git file, then do check the security on that file 
to prevent anyone gaining access to your passwords without your knowledge. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Sheffield City Council suffered a data breach this week when records of some 8.6 million journeys on Sheffield Road were reportedly left exposed. It was possible to search the automatic number plate recognition AMPR system without entering a password. Sheffield City Council and South Yorkshire Police said they were taking joint responsibility for working to address this data breach and that an investigation is underway to establish what happened. Big Brother Watch, a privacy campaign group, said council shouldn't be conducting this mass-scale snooping at all, let alone leaking millions of sensitive records on the internet. The incompetent management of this appalling mass surveillance system means the council will have no idea who has had access to the data, when, how, why or what they might do with it. Detailed journey records of thousands of people could be exploited by criminals and pose a particular risk in stalking and harassment contexts. The issue was first reported on the technology website The Register, which said that the AMPR dashboard could be used to reconstruct journeys minute by minute. Tony Porter, the surveillance camera commissioner, said the report of this alleged data breach is both astonishing and worrying. Sheffield City Council have taken action and it is no longer possible to access the data online and the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, has been made aware of the breach. In a statement, the ICO said it would assess the information provided. Both Sheffield City Council and South Yorkshire Police have launched investigations and promised to do everything we can to ensure it won't happen again. In a joint statement, they said it is not an acceptable thing to have occurred. However, it is important to be very clear that, to the best of our knowledge, no detention or any harm will suffer any detrimental effect as a result of this breach. Last year, it was found that Sheffield Council accidentally sent the contact details of hundreds of people, including a woman who had been raped, in an email about a strip club licence renewal. If we receive any updates from either the ICO or Sheffield City Council about the data breach from the traffic cameras, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You've tried the rest and not impressed. Take a chance and try the best. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. It was revealed by Sky News this week that Warwick University had been hacked and that the data breach had been kept secret from students and staff. The Sky News article said that multiple data breaches had taken place at the Russell Group University, but none of the data breaches had been communicated to the individuals affected. It said that hackers had accessed the University of Warwick's administrative network last year in an attack which had been kept secret from the affected individuals and organisations. The security incident occurred when a staff member installed remote viewing software enabling hackers to steal sensitive personal information on students, staff and even volunteers taking part in research studies. Because cyber security protections at the university were so poor, as per the findings of an internal report revealed by Sky News earlier this month, it was impossible for the university to identify what data had been stolen. Several sources have told Sky News that this one was one of multiple data breaches which have taken place at Warwick University, which regularly receives more than £120 million in research grants every year. Warwick's registrar and executive lead for data protection, Rachel Sambi-Thomas, who is ultimately responsible for IT services, did not inform any of the individuals or research bodies whose data was stored on the admin network about these breaches or the risks they had been exposed to. When this point was put to the university, the university declined to comment. 
an executive summary of another audit, this time by the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, was published in March, providing the first mention of these security risks which either students or staff had heard about. Several sources told Sky News that during the final meeting concluding the ICO's audit, the regulator made what was perceived to be a recommendation that Ms. Sambi Thomas be removed as chair of the University's Data Protection Privacy Group. To a room of more than 20 people, including Ms. Sambi Thomas, the auditor recommended that the group should be chaired by someone with data protection expertise. The university told Sky News, The registrar fully agreed with the report's finding that we should give those areas of responsibility to someone with a specialist skill set and experience. Despite not having this specialist skill set and experience, Ms. Sambi Thomas has been the executive lead for IT and data protection at the university since 2016, a period during which multiple security incidents have occurred. After a recommendation was made that she stand down from chairing the DPPG, the registrar disbanded the committee. The university confirmed, as previous structures clearly did not deliver all the change and improvements we'd sought in this area, it's no surprise that we also sought to change and improve the structure. We have therefore introduced two new committees to provide enhanced oversight and advice which bring in a wealth of talent, including one of Europe's leading cybersecurity professors. A new Chief Information Officer and Digital Officer, who reports directly to the Vice-Chancellor, has also been hired. The University told Sky News, we have also, unsurprisingly, and for the same reasons, made changes to the operation and focus of the management and administrative team for that area of work, but all of those staff remain employed by the university. Sky News says it's seen an internal email featuring the registrar joking about the cybersecurity audit, telling staff it was tomato-coloured, and dismissing their potential interest in knowing whether their data was at risk by saying, if I told you that, I'd have to kill you. In the same email, the registrar acknowledged that she attempted to refuse to allow the ICO to conduct its voluntary audit until she was informed that the alternative to a voluntary audit was a compulsory, less friendly one. A spokesman for the university said the registrar's comments simply confirmed and supported the more formal communications of staff that there were a number of areas in both our own analysis and the ICO audit that clearly should be red flagged. They also confirmed the ICOs and our own assessment that only the summary audit report should be public as a publication of the full report could potentially undermine the work to implement its actual recommendations. But the risks to students and staff data as highlighted by multiple data protection incidents were not made public as part of the summary audit report. Sources at the university told Sky News they would like the council to hold an independent investigation into the executive lead's handling of these incidents. The university declined to comment on whether the executive would support such an investigation. This potentially seems like quite a major incident at Warwick University because to have a data breach is one thing, but to then effectively try and block the ICO audit and then to still not tell students and staff that they may have been subject to a data breach just seems incredibly negligent to us. We've not yet had an opportunity to actually review the full audit report ourselves, but once we have, we will doubtless bring you another article on this in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Great Yarmouth Borough Council have had to apologise over a data breach affecting more than a 1,000 businesses after personal information was shared by mistake. Great Yarmouth Borough Council said that the data breach affected some 20% of businesses, but there had been no financial risk to any of the victims. The council revealed that data had been shared with one other unnamed business, which had been sent the information in response to that business's request for details held on its own account. As well as receiving its own information, the enterprise was sent details belonging to 1,147 other companies too. The company had been asked to securely destroy the information it received in error, and affected businesses had been written to alerting them of the risk. 
The letter warns that a small amount of personal data had been disclosed to other business ratepayer, including names, reference numbers, trading and correspondence addresses. It stressed that no financial information had been revealed. In a statement, Great Yarmouth Borough Council said the council has written to 1,147 businesses, about a fifth of the business rate payers, to inform them that a limited amount of personal information held on their business rates account was accidentally released to another business rate payer. No financial information such as bank account numbers or card details was released. The council identified this error almost immediately, notified the information commissioner's office and asked the recipient to securely destroy the information. The event occurred due to isolated human error. The information released was not already accessible in the public domain, notably account references and correspondence addresses, but was a relatively low risk. However, the council takes all data security very seriously and has taken all necessary steps to mitigate any risk written to the businesses as a precautionary measure and put in place procedures to ensure it does not reoccur. The council said the breach happened as part of the council response to a customer's request for data relating to their own individual business and was not related to any council projects or to administration of the government's COVID-19 relief grants for businesses. Given that the data was mainly business data and was solely correspondence addresses, and the business rate reference number, but that's probably of limited use, then we suspect the ICO is unlikely to take any serious action in this case other than perhaps issuing a warning to Great Yarmouth Borough Council. And we are assured that Great Yarmouth Borough Council has entered details of the incident into its data breach register, as of course it is required to do. This incident does perhaps, though, indicate the very real need to ensure that when you are responding to a data subject access request, you make sure that the data that you're supplying is only related to the data subject who made the access request and not revealing details of any other data subjects in your response to the data subject who's made the request. Often imitated but never duplicated. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We travel over to Ireland for our next article this week, which relates to a stolen device containing personal info amongst four data breaches at City Hall in Cork in 2019 and 2020. The Data Protection Commission for Ireland said that the stolen device containing personal data and mislaid documentation were just some of the instances of data breaches within City Hall between 2019 and 2020. One of the breaches referred to by the Data Protection Commission Office was referred to as information found in a public place. That is understood to relate to a case in April 2019 when a number of parking offence warning letters containing names, addresses, car registration numbers and offence details were found by a member of the public outside City Hall in Torque. However, the Data Protection Commission said they weren't in a position to provide further information on the other breach notifications they'd received. City Hall, meanwhile, confirmed that the theft of a mobile device and administration errors such as documentation inadvertently left in a printer, documentation mislaid, an email inadvertently sent to the wrong recipient, and inadvertent publication of personal information online were some of the issues involved. The Data Protection Commission spokesperson said that the Data Protection Commission had had received four breach notifications from City Council since the beginning of 2019. The breach is notified related to unauthorised disclosure of information due to administrative errors, a device containing personal data that was stolen, and information found in a public place. The spokesperson said, We have engaged with Port City Council on all notifications received and understand it has implemented mitigation measures to prevent such incidents reoccurring. 
It was confirmed that there were 10 data breaches reported in City Hall since the start of 2019. However, most were considered to be low risk and therefore, although they'd been entered in the City Hall data breach register, had not actually been referred to the Data Privacy Commission. I think that the examples given here, particularly of information being left in a public place, information being left on a printer, emails being sent to the wrong person, are just examples of how easy it is for any organisation to suffer a data breach. And perhaps serve as a timely reminder that especially now that many places have staff working remotely and therefore perhaps not so easily under the watch of senior management that they may just need a refresher in how to handle sensitive data so that your organisation isn't one of those that suffers an embarrassing data breach. The mobile app Quibi which says that it allows you to watch movie-quality shows designed for your phone with new episodes every day, which launched in April this year, has found itself subject to non-compliance with GDPR. The issue has arisen because Quibi verifies new users' email addresses and then sends them to multiple third-party advertising and analytics companies, including Google, Facebook and Twitter. When a new user signs up to Quibi, they receive an email with a verification link. Clicking that link, appended their address to the URL and sent it in plain text to multiple other companies. Creepy's actions by doing this put it outside of the rules laid down, not both in GDPR, but also the Californian Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. In a statement, Creepy said that it fits the issue the report raised. The moment the issue on our webpage was revealed to our security and engineering team, we fixed it immediately, the company said, adding data protection is essential to Quibi and the security user information is the highest priority. However, the investigators who dug into the issue said it was unlikely that Quibi were unaware of the issue. Zach Edwards at digital strategy firm Victory Medium said it's an extremely disrespectful decision to purposely leak all new user emails to your advertising partners and there's almost no way that numerous people at Quibi were not only aware of the plan but helped to architect this user data breach. He went on to say in 2020 no new technology organisation should be launching that with leaks that let all new users confirmed emails to advertising and analytic companies. Edward said he had confirmed that email addresses were still being leaked as late as April the 26th this year. Quibi's privacy policy says that users are asked to provide their email addresses when signing up to the service and in a separate section discloses that it may share personal information with third parties to let them provide services like personalised advertising, ad measurement and verification. And so Quibi are arguing that their privacy policy makes it clear that the data is going to be shared. Our personal view is that in the way it's arranged in the privacy policy it's not clear enough and most people reading the privacy policy would probably not realise that simply by verifying their email address, they were agreeing to that email address being shared with all the advertisers on the Creepy platform. As I said, Creepy say they've now fixed the issue, so we wait and see. Creepy did say that since their launch on April the 7th this year, over 2.7 million people have downloaded its app. If we have any update on this issue, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And we finish this week with news that a major US pharmaceutical firm has revealed that ransomware attackers recently encrypted its servers and stole corporate and employee data. Its Farm 
explained in a breach notification to the Office of the Vermont Attorney General that the incident occurred on March the 13th, when unknown individuals deployed ransomware to its IT system and sought payment in return for a decryption key. As part of this incident, Executive employees received phishing emails from the unknown individuals, it said. Upon a thorough investigation, Executive determined that the individuals behind the encryption and the sending of these emails may have accessed and or shared select personal information relating to Executive personnel, as well as personal information relating to Paralexcel personnel, whose information was stored on Executive data network. Paralexcel is the Massachusetts headquartered parent company of Executive Farm claimed that the information stolen included social security numbers, taxpayer IDs, driver's license numbers, passport numbers, bank account details, credit card numbers, NI numbers and beneficiary information. That represents a major haul for any data theft and provides lots of information that could be sold on the dark web and or has been reported, published online in an attempt to persuade the firm to pay the original ransom. It is understood that there is no publicly available decryption methods for the ransomware used in this attack and that pharma companies rich with sensitive research and development represent a highly lucrative target for cyber criminals. Matt Walmsley, EMEA director at Vetra, said attackers tend to target privileged entities associated with accounts, hosts and services due to the unrestricted access they can provide and to ease reputation and propagation. Attackers will manoeuvre themselves through a network and make that step from a regular user account to a privileged account, which can then give them access to all the data they need in order to finalise their ransomware attack and bribe the victims, he explained. He went on to say, therefore, security teams need to be agile as time is their most precious resource in dealing with ransomware attacks. Early detection and response are key to gaining back control and stopping the attackers in their tracks before they can propagate across the organisation, stealing and denying access to data. And of course, this brings back to mind the situation with Travelec, which we reported in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, where again their data was encrypted and they actually brought down their whole system and effectively ground their company to a halt for quite a period of time. If we receive an update on this from Executive Farm, we will bring it to you in an upcoming episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Stay in. Stay safe. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.